the good news is Jesus. It's not good news about Jesus. It's not good news of a set of understandings. The good news is Jesus. Hi, it's Carolyn Ahrens here, Director of Education for Renovari, standing in for Nathan Foster. It's February 2019, and the Renovari Book Club has just started reading The Cloud of Unknowing. We aim to choose books in the book club that have a timeless quality to them, books that stretch us but are still accessible. The Cloud of Unknowing definitely fits the bill. In this episode, Nathan interviews someone for whom The Cloud of Unknowing is a life book. James Cafford, former chief executive for the British Bible Society and current Renovari board member, is serving as our facilitator for the book in the book club. He tells us that The Cloud of Unknowing, written by an anonymous author in the 14th century, is a book about searching for God. It offers an alternative to the shallow expressions of pseudo-spirituality that are often on sale today. And it serves as an early and helpful guide to Christian contemplation. Richard Foster has written that the contemplative life is the steady gaze of the soul upon the God who loves us. As you'll hear in this podcast, James Catford assures us that the cloud of unknowing can help us steady our gaze. If you'd like to explore the cloud of unknowing further, you can visit renovari.org backslash book club to learn more. But for now, enjoy Nathan's conversation with James Cafford right here in the Renovari podcast. I am really, really excited to talk about this book um, with you. Can I start... With by just reading something, please do. Okay, because this is this makes this whole interview quite tricky. Okay. Whoever you are possessing this book, know that I charge you with a serious responsibility to which I attach the sternest sanctions that the bonds of love can bear. It does not matter whether this book belongs to you, whether you're keeping it for someone else, whether you are taking it to someone or borrowing it. You are not to read it write or speak of it, nor allow anyone to do so unless you really believe that he is a person deeply committed to following Jesus perfectly. And (laughs) then it goes on, we get another warning. Moreover, I charge you with love's authority. If you do give this book to someone else, warn them as I warn you to take the time to read it thoroughly It is very possible that certain chapters do not stand by themselves, but require the explanation given in other chapters to complete their meaning. Mm -hmm. I fear least a person read only some parts and quickly fall into error. To avoid a blunder like this, I beg you and anyone else reading this book for love's sake to do as I ask. Hmm. We're we're set up, James, to even (laughs) talk about the book. (laughs) Well, it's difficult to go and check on everybody who's going to hear this recording. So um, that is a slight challenge. I don't think we can send out a consent um, form to everybody who who comes in on this podcast. Um, so we're going to have to trust people that they're going to be open to this. <laughs> but I love his intent. I love his earnest, how earnest he is and how serious he is on this. I mean, 
it clearly is important to him. He really wanted this to be a book. These are precious ideas. I mean, my word, he did um, do the best he could to make this book as accessible as possible in 75 chapters. They're not long. I mean, the whole book isn't long. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's chunking it up into little uh, bite-sized you know, chunks, which does make it easier to re- read. Um, but... Um, I think I think um, he's doing his very best to make it accessible, but he's also concerned that by being accessible, it's also too accessible and it's too easy with mm. him. So I, I uh, love the kind of piece of don't don't soundbite me, right? Like d- right, hear the whole story before you kind yeah. of rush to conclusion. Yeah. And there's a different part. He says, um, you know, read the book several times over. And you may find that a chapter that didn't work for you the first time works for you afterwards. And because it's not a long book, that is a possibility. And you can actually go over it again. I mean, and also to read it in a different translation, because it was originally in an old English, a kind of Chaucer esque. I mean, this is pre William Shakespeare. This is pre the old William Shakespeare plays, we're talking about 300 years before the King James. So, you know, this is not... So everybody's working off a different translation, and I think I found it really helpful to read it in different ways. Um, So get... I mean, the the one we're working on, um, you know, Johnston's, is a lovely middle-of-the-road one, it's not the oldest. It's not the most classical English, but it's accessible. It is. It's. It's really very you know straightforward. But there are others, and there's some very good contemporary ones, which is just a nice contrast as mm-hmm. well. So, um, yeah, maybe that's a place to start before we actually talk about the book. Is that these classical writings really deserve a, a slow read? A thorough multiple reads to, to yeah. kind of get that is that accurate? oh yes the older the book the slower the speed I think um, I mean contemporary books can be fantastic um, but these older books you know really I mean I often say these kinds of books you need to eat with a small um, spoon just one little piece at a time. And that's why I think the breaking it up into chapters like this is so easy because you just take one. It's like a page, two-page chapter. Have a little go at it. Read it, you know, when you you can. Um, Work on it a bit. Read it more than once. I mean, it, it, it feels sometimes, hasn't he made that point before and we have to understand that he won't have that sequential unfolding argument that contemporary books have um, he won't have had an editor who's saying right i want you to put all of that topic into that chapter he is going back over but i think it's more of a spiral the structure is more of a spiral it's not a circle that he keeps coming back to the same things he comes back to the point and builds something else 
um, you know, on it. So um, it's quite helpful to think of it in those terms. Um, he's not had a classical education in the same way that others have, but um, there's a lot there. Let me tell you one other thing that I think is really helpful in it. We all think, and maybe this is something that comes to us as, a, as an attack, we have a popular idea that these books were going to be really harsh on us. Mm. They're going to be very strict. They're going to be very unforgiving. But one of the things I find with this book, as with others, they're very generous in how they handle following Jesus. You know, we've got this sort of idea that they're, they're all very stiff and starchy, and they're like the old pews in old English churches. Sometimes they were called sit-up-and-beg pews. Have you heard of that expression? No. <laughs> some pews in some churches in Britain, very old ones, are called sit-up-and-beg the back of the chair is at right angles to the seat and they're forcing you to sit upright. Woe betide you relaxing. Woe betide you slouching. And we sometimes have that image of these old classics that they're going to be very much sort of, you need to have a cold shower every day. You need to be stern with yourself. <laughs> They really aren't, you know. This book is much more kind um, as as the, the other ones are. And, and why is that? Because they know the people they're talking to. Well, and this is coming from experience. So they know their own struggles and they know the struggles of others. So we can come to these books with a lot more grace than than often we expect them to have. And we might miss the fact that he's making a lot of concessions to us, actually. And we should receive those and just work with these, these books. So I just offer that as a... That's very, that's very helpful. Yeah, my impression right off the bat was it felt very pastoral. Yeah. And that the people that the author was writing to were people he loved and genuinely was committed to helping them grow. Right. So it just felt it felt gentle and, and caring to me in a way that yeah. almost took me aback. Yeah. Well, it is. It, it really takes your breath away in some of this. One of the interesting things it says is that... Um, the author, because we don't know who the author is, um, which I've always find is intriguing. Um, you know, who was this person? Um, we think we've got some ideas, but um, um, the middle um, England, probably the middle of England, the sort of 1300s. We think he was a Cistercian, so he was a religious order. We think he was probably had some education behind him, but not perhaps overly educated. He says, we presume it's a guy. We're not sure of you know, gender. I'm not sure how many people would agree with me. I don't want to make that concession too fast that it is a guy. But um, you know, he says that he's 24 years old, which is a really interesting thing because if he if he was, that's incredibly young to be offering spiritual advice to anybody else. I mean, 
you would still be in the sort of schooling age. But it might be a, a stylistic device where he's identifying with his audience. So he might be writing for a young kind of post-grad youngest stage of our spiritual journey where we're just feeling our way and it certainly has that feel to it of he doesn't assume too much he doesn't expect too much he's pastoral as you say so we can start to build up a bit of a, a picture of who these individuals are i think The title sets up an image that I have found so helpful. Could you explain what he means by the cloud of unknowing? Yeah. The more I look at this book, the more I I feel there probably isn't one single understanding of that term. I I play with these terms and then I think, no, if I opt for just one, I'm losing some of the others. So let's just look at one thing. This cloud of unknowing could be understood as a stage in our spiritual journey. So early on in our journey, we are so convinced we're right. (laughs) We're so convinced we've got it down. We're so killing it with our uh, capability to define and articulate and process and systematize what we believe and perhaps someone you know we know i know people perhaps i was this you know as a student it seems so straightforward but then as you go on a bit and it's not about being a good person it's it's just about your where you are is it doesn't seem so easy anymore it doesn't seem so clear anymore it doesn't seem so tidy anymore there are questions about the Bible, there are questions about me, there are questions about what's going on in the world. There's questions that people of no faith that are coming to us with that we're not sure how to handle. And I think I can see this working. The cloud of unknowing is I'm confused. I'm still working things out. And it's an invitation to bring those uncertainties, those things we're not so sure about now, to Jesus, because it is about intimacy, this book, and to bring those and to pursue them. And I think this is a really important part of understanding this book, is the cloud of unknowing. I'm not sure, you know, um, I want to be very careful here, because I am very convicted of the faith that I have. I'm very certain of the things I'm certain about. So I'm not advocating watering down. I'm not doing in praise of doubt in that sense. But I am recognizing that we have to be prepared to risk a few things. You know, Faith is often about learning to swim. And sometimes you have to let go of the sides of the pool in order to learn. And there's something about that in this understanding of it. So I think that's what to... uh, 
that's one thing. It's an invitation to go deeper. It's an invitation to take risks. I'm not saying, you know, jettison. I'm more convinced now than I've ever been of what I believe. There's another way of understanding this cloud, and that is, and this is more explicit in the book, I think, is there's something about needing to unlearn things as well as to learn things. There are some things we've built up, some understandings of our faith of Jesus, of God, that we might need to unlearn some things or unlearn some things about myself. You know, I might have a picture of God that is probably not very helpful. Um, you know, one of our community in Renovare says, if your picture of God is wrong, if your image of God is wrong, the more you, the more religious you are, <laughs> the worse things get. And I think that's very intriguing. If your picture of God is wrong, the more religious you are, the more committed you are, the more committed to a wrong image of God you are, the worse your problems get. And I think that sometimes we need to unlearn some things as well as to learn some things. We're learning much more about the neuroplasticity of the brain. And it's becoming clearer that we have to unlearn, unknow some things as part of knowing some things. And these are people, mm -hmm. contemporary neuroscientists, who are learning things in the 21st century that the cloud of unknowing had discovered in the 1300s. Isn't that interesting? Mm. To kind of piggyback off of that, this picture for when entering into contemplation, contemplative prayer, holding the tension of the cloud of unknowing and the cloud of forgetting. Right. Could you explain what that is? Well, again, I think I would probably build on build on this a bit. The author does seem to see a distinction between the cloud of unknowing and the cloud of forgetting. Um, whether that means the forgetting is a slightly more deliberate attempt to forget things, um, to lay down things, to lay aside things, I'm not fully sure about that. Um, Unknowing is a place of great vulnerability. Um, forgetting is something I, I wonder, and, and, and read the, the book and see whether I'm right or not, feels to me slightly more of a choice. Um, <laughs> forgetting, the, the laying aside of things. Well, one of the, the things that, that, that was very important in the day this book came out was there was an incredibly strong emphasis on stirring up religious fervor using two things. One was the wounds of Christ. And that was a very mawkish, blood-curdling, suffering understanding of what happened on the cross, particularly what, what's, what is called the or, or rather a theory of atonement, meaning 
what happened on the cross, what was going on on the cross, and to stir up fervor from probably some pretty poorly educated people, because people in England were very poorly educated, you would stir them up with incredible, you know, uh, pictures and stories and graphic images. And if you look at in a church art, it could be very bloodthirsty. But the other was to stir up by looking at our own sinfulness and fallenness and corruption, as it was called, and original sin and, you know, um, you know, total depravity. All these terms were terribly popular. And it's quite clear from the book that the author is trying to say, we probably need to get beyond that stuff. Uh, our friend Dallas Willard was asked, do you believe in total depravity? And he said, I believe in sufficient depravity. <laughs> so there's plenty of sins in us to know we need Christ. Whether we need to dwell on it, some people have an incredibly persecuted mindset, I'm a sinner, I'm a failure stuff. And I think the author is saying, don't let that narrative, that story, block you from knowing God, having right. intimacy, having contact time, having air time with Jesus. Yeah, that's what I caught in it was, these are important, but it's not the end. Right. There's, there's a, a union, there's an a intimacy to go to, and, and if you just kind of stop there, it's not necessarily helpful. You've been working with this text for many, many years. Maybe as we close things out, is there a piece or two that has been really helpful for you personally? I think what I find most helpful is this high value he puts on. There is a life, there is God, and you can experience this. The good news is Jesus. It's not good news about Jesus. It's not good news of a set of understandings. The good news is um, you know, Jesus and its intimacy with Jesus. I mean, there's a whole philosophical you know, structure behind this, but reality does exist Invisible things are real is a phrase we sometimes use. Invisible things are real. And the second thing to say is, and you can experience them and they will change you. You know, you can go directly to God and sit with him and have intimacy with him. And we both know, we all know, there's a thousand and one reasons why we can't do it. And this, he calls it a naked intent, the naked intent to experience God, to beat upon the cloud, to make some space in our world and to pursue it. Now, it takes a little time and we we'll want to work at it, but you can experience God in that way. It was controversial in his day. It's controversial 
in our day, but through Christ, we can experience Him. Thank you, James. Very helpful. Pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Renovari podcast. You can learn more about Renovari and about the Renovari Book Club at renovari.org.